together before we study God's Word. Our Father, we ask you to open the book to us deeply, that we would um, not just listen, Lord, but treasure it, that we would embrace it. That what you revealed to us here is what you, the living God, has offered to us, sinful, redeemed creatures, Father. It's your word to us. We just pray that um, we would accept it as such, fully, in a way that would please you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Where does human uh, emotion fit in to your faith in Christ? Just singing that song makes me emotional. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a question that's frequently come down through the centuries in the church. It's been answered in a variety of ways in different traditions and with varying expectations where emotion belongs in um, the Christian life and worship. Some have seen emotions as threatening because an overemphasis on feeling can lead to emotionalism. And emotionalism means Christianity, for some, is emotion. I mean, that's what it is. That's what they come for. Emotion is the center. It's what's being sought. Some people go to church to get an emotional buzz. And if they didn't get the buzz, they wouldn't go. And some churches play to that. They, uh, people come for it, so we'll give it to them. We'll give them the buzz. And they can have their reaction and then they can go home happy and come back next week. I was actually reading an article about Brad Pitt recently. And I never read articles about Brad Pitt. (laughs) But this one was in Parade Magazine and the LA Times a couple weeks ago. And on the front it said, the title of it was, I I Will Not Betray My Beliefs by Brad Pitt. You know, I mean, it was was his. So I was like, okay. I I just had to read that one because I was very interested in what he had to say. I was curious what his beliefs were. They turn out to be unbeliefs. But um, he was raised in a um, revivalistic Southern Baptist home. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Um, and Which he's totally rejected, by the way. He's rejected his faith. But anyway, he said in the article, um, quote, I'd go to Christian revivals and be moved by the Holy Spirit. And I'd go to rock concerts and feel the same fervor. I've always thought that. That the buzz people get at a rock concert is often the buzz they label the Holy Spirit when they come to a church where they receive a very similar type of environment. I mean, I've noticed that. So it doesn't surprise me that he went the other direction because uh, it's sort of, it is the same feeling for a lot of people. Uh, notice the word feel he uses. I feel the same fervor. Much of what passes for worship in contemporary Christianity is an imitation of a concert buzz. That's basically what it is. So a person can be in the spirit, quote-unquote, totally emotionally engaged, totally engaged, and have no guilt for sin, no remorse, no love for God, not a concern in the world about doing the right thing or pleasing Him in any respects, and yet be 100% in the spirit. Very easy. Emotionalism labels extreme emotions in the church as the Holy Spirit, when it may not be Him at all. In fact, I remember hearing on local radio an ad for a church in the Antelope Valley that said, come here, our worship team, so you can feel the Holy Spirit. As though, as though his presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life was dependent on the quality of the music. And I thank God for our music, which just now emotionally affected me. But that's not what I'm here for. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'll talk more about where emotion comes in in just a second. But Some people overreact to that whole problem, though. If emotionalism is a problem, we'll be as stuffy as we can be. Mm -hmm. 
and emotionless as possible. We'll be like a stone saints, totally impassive. And that's not really the answer either. A, a Christian should feel deeply. They should feel deeply about divine things, right? Shouldn't you experience wonder at something that is truly wonderful? I mean, that just kind of makes sense. Shouldn't you have joy at the best news you'll ever hear, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Shouldn't that produce joy? Shouldn't the truth of God's goodness to you, a sinner, humble your heart? I mean, profoundly humble you and uh, call forth a desire to love God and serve Him and all those things. So yeah, of course, both extremes are wrong. Emotionalism is wrong and being somehow anti-emotion is wrong. Emotion needs to be in the right place. Not at the center. It's not what we're seeking, but they should be felt. Emotion should be felt as a natural response, a natural response to knowing God and hearing the truth of God. It is entirely fitting and right to have an emotional response to truth, especially to such wonderful truth as we have in the Gospel. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at what has come to be known as the Magnificat. It's Mary's song. And we're going to look at its content. But notice as well, as we work through this passage of Scripture together in Luke chapter 1, the emotional and attitudinal response to what God has done on the part of two women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, um, her cousin. How do they feel when they are blessed by God? Mary's Magnificat, which begins in verse 46, is first of all a hymn of response and she's reacting to things around her. Now before we actually read this text together, let's just back up and remember what we learned about Mary from last week. She's in Nazareth, which is a little village sort of up in the sticks there from a poor family. She received an angelic visitor who announced that she would be the mother of the Messiah, the eternal king, the son of the Most High is how the angel put it. And when asked how it would be she asked how it would be done since she was a virgin. She was told that there would be a direct creative act by the Spirit of God in her that would make this happen. And, and we talked about Mary's response then. It says she pondered it, so she thought it through and completely and wholeheartedly submitted herself to the plan of God. Remember Mary's marvelous maxim, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your will. That, that is the great thing she says in verse 38. And we see, even in that story, a clear picture of Mary's personality. Her, she's a quiet person, a reflective person, a very thoughtful person, a deep person. She's serious about her relationship with God. And in the story of Gabriel's visit to Mary, we aren't told much about how she feels. Her emotions aren't described, but we get a good indication of them as it continues in verse 39 there. So let's, uh, we're going to pick it up there. And remember, Gabriel told Mary of Elizabeth's remarkable pregnancy as an encouragement to Mary's faith. He said, your, your cousin Elizabeth already is having the, the child who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So Elizabeth's being, Elizabeth is an elderly woman. She's past childbearing, but now pregnant with John the Baptist. So let's pick it up at verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how it has happened to me, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exults in the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring, forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So what happens here is quite remarkable. And uh, let's kind of back up and get the setting a little bit. As soon as the angel was out the door, out the door of Mary's place or disappeared or whatever he does, Mary makes plans to visit Elizabeth right away. And she's off, you know. So she went with haste back there in verse 39. So off on a several day journey to see her older relation. Well, why is she going? Is she curious? Is she excited? Does she want to see the baby? Um, is there a, just a sense of wonder of it all? We aren't told why, but my guess would be that part of it could be all those things, of course. But based on the angel's words, Mary had somebody she could confide in. I mean, she's going to show up pregnant in a small town, unmarried, and Elizabeth's going to understand, I think she's thinking. So uh, she goes to see her quickly. And... Um, who could she share this with but one who was also going to bear a kind of a miracle child? God was moving after 400 years of silence. And Mary, I'm sure, wanted to hear Elizabeth's experience and her place in this great activity because the angel had revealed to her that Elizabeth was a part of this and, and uh, share what the angel said to her. And I, I think this was the most reasonable thing for Mary to do. But it, I don't think she's expecting what happens. So, and we don't know how well they knew each other. They were related um, cousins. We don't know, but she probably did know her, even though Elizabeth lived in Judea. It says that in verse 65 of chapter 1. So she has to travel from the northern part of Israel to the southern part of Israel. And they were cousins, and they lived far apart, but Mary's family probably had been to Jerusalem for all the feasts, and Elizabeth's family would be at Jerusalem for all the feasts. So I'm sure when that, those things happen three times a year that the families would get together. It'd be like going to see an older aunt or a great aunt or something. So verse 40 um, she comes and she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Just a very normal scene. Mary arrives, comes in the house, gives her cousin Elizabeth a greeting. Hello, Aunt Elizabeth, or whatever she says. And that's when things start to get interesting. Now, Elizabeth knew that her child, now six months in the womb, was going to prepare the way for the visitation of God, for the coming of the Messiah. She knew that. Elizabeth knew that. She'd been thinking about that for six months five of which she, she spent in isolation, verse 24 says, and she's just now starting to see people, and obviously much in prayer and anticipation and with great expectancy. And, and out of the blue, Cousin Mary uh, visits, you know, a teenager, a young girl, a good girl. In verse 41 it says, And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, when, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It's, it's like the way Luke is presenting it, it's like things can't wait to happen. You know, there's so much anticipation going on here. It's, it's exciting. It's dynamic. And um, 
yeah, John is supposed to point to the Messiah and prepare his way, but you'd think he could wait to get born first, you know, but uh, he wants to do it now. So the, the, it's the joy of God's redemptive work. It just can't wait. So the Spirit of God is moving upon these people in very powerful ways. So Elizabeth turns and baby John starts doing handsprings in the womb, you know. You gals know how that feels. And she's overwhelmed by the prophetic power of the Spirit of God, Elizabeth is. And the Spirit hasn't moved a human heart to prophetic utterance, as far as we know, hasn't done it for 400 years. And Elizabeth is the first. Since the days of Malachi, Gabriel had come twice, but Elizabeth, prompted by the prophet in her womb, sets forth the first inspired message to come from human lips in centuries. And she shouts it, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And in verse 43, she has knowledge that only the Holy Spirit could give her supernaturally. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How does she know that? Hello, Aunt Elizabeth. Blessed is the womb which bore you. How is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? And she knows. She just knows. The Holy Spirit has revealed it to her. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. She, she didn't take that as just another kick, you know. Oh, he's going again. Oh. Uh, she knows exactly what it is. So this is like prophetic knowledge. She knows Mary's pregnant, and she could only be for a day or two. And she knows the child will be, uh, that Mary will bear is her Lord. And how does Mary react? Well, so far, um, just like with Gabriel, she's just sort of soaking it in. And undoubtedly, she's astonished that Elizabeth would greet her this way. This is the second time in a week this peasant girl has been called the favored one and blessed among women. And it's a wonderful confirmation of all that Gabriel had said to her. And Elizabeth also knows that Mary believed what God had told her. Look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She even knows that Mary responded in faith to the angel, unlike somebody she might be married to who took a little, <laughs> little extra... Um, who still hasn't said a word since, <laughs> since the day uh, he came out of the temple, so maybe that's been a blessing at home, I don't know. So uh, plainly, Elizabeth is fulfilling a kind of prophetic role here, prefiguring her son's mission to set the scene for Mary's child. So she's spirit-filled, just like a prophet would be, and we will see in the weeks ahead, this 400 silent years is not broken by the appearance of an angel only, it's broken by a flurry of prophetic activity. And people are just spouting up all over with prophetic uh, exaltation and, and speeches. And it's just incredible. Poetry and song and divinely prompted speech. It just pours forth during these months from all sorts of unexpected places. And Mary just keeps getting kind of bombarded with it, which is very exciting. In verse 46, then, we have Mary's response. And it's a song. It's a poem, a Hebrew song, much in the flavor, much in the flavor and style of the Old Testament. And for again, for people that claim that the Bible was written long after and long after Israel went out of existence, what Gentile, church-based, pagan-turned-Christian person could compose such a beautiful song that is so Hebraic and so Old Testamentish and be wise enough to do that? This is right out of history. This is exactly what she said. It was, these are Mary's words. Now, Mary doesn't have the New Testament. She's, she's rooted in the Old Testament. Or she's going to give birth to the new covenant. She's not part of it. She doesn't know anything about it yet. And it's all so her thinking, her mode of expression is entirely out of the old. Entirely out of the old. So, several days of experience is starting to come through now. And the words of Elizabeth call forth 
from Mary this song of praise. And remember, we, uh, our earlier questions, what, what happens when a person of faith is blessed by God? What emotional response comes from them? What emotions do they feel? What goes through their mind? What qualities do they exhibit? What's the natural thing to feel when God has so dramatically touched a life? Well, Mary's song is a classic. It's almost a definitive answer to that question. And here's the response of faith to the work of God in a life. In fact, two words really characterize the whole passage, joy and humility. Two wonderful Christian feelings. And these qualities enter a life when we finally lay down all those things that have kept God separate from us, that have kept him at arm's length. When we are willing to surrender and put those things down and receive Jesus as our Savior and our King, nothing is more humbling. Nothing is more humbling than admitting that we can offer God nothing in and of ourselves and that we need Christ and we need his saving work. That, and that alone can get us to heaven. That humbles you. And what greater joy can be? What can be more joyful than having embraced Christ and knowing that you belong to Him forever and nothing can snatch you out of His hand and that we have peace with God? Peace with God. That's a joyful thing. Some 30 years ago, it's been a long time now, I realized that Jesus was not just the founder of Christianity and a neat guy. A man nailed to a cross but that he died there to pay for my sin. It was 30 years ago I, I realized that. And I'm not sure I really knew joy until that day. Honestly, I'm not sure I ever really experienced joy until then. And I know I didn't experience humility until then. I know that. And all my friends can tell you that. But, <laughs> but as God's grace opened my heart, I knew both of those things. Both of those things. Both women in our text reflect both joy and humility. First, Elizabeth, far older in years than Mary, the wife of a priest, a woman who had many sorrows in her life, having been childless for most of her life, she joyfully and wholeheartedly recognizes that a much higher honor has been extended to Mary than to her. And she's thrilled. She's, she's fine with that. There's no jealousy or grumbling or any of that kind of stuff. Not a hint of it even. Verse 43, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Utter humility. Utter humility. She's honored by the presence of this young girl because she's a woman of humility. She has a strong sense of her own unworthiness, even though she's been favored herself, thankful to play any part in the great plan of God. In joy, it's in absolutely every word she says, and it's, just, it's, it's dancing in her womb, joy, and uh, she's thrilled. Her humility allows her joy. Jealousy would have robbed her of joy, right? right. But her humility allows her joy. That's such a critical thing. Now let's go on to Mary's song. Please note um, how the song develops. This is how we should look at the work of God in our lives. Mary's thoughts go from the personal to the general, from her blessings to the character of God and how it's unfolded in her life, from what's happened to her to just how God does things. And it brings her great, great peace and joy. Verse 46 Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. So that's how she feels. She's full of joy and praise. My soul exalts the Lord, magnifies. That's where that phrase magnificat from the Latin gets that stuck into that title of this song. Magnific she magnifies God. Her soul, her inner self is overwhelmed with the greatness of God and she's focused on that and she's wanting to express that. She's proclaiming that greatness, so she's getting a glimpse of how awesome 
God really is, and she wants to share it. And the second line of the couplet in classic Hebrew poetic form there elaborates on the first line. She proclaims God's greatness and does so joyfully, enthusiastically. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. So he's not God out there somewhere. To her, he's God, my Savior. I hope we can all pray that with the same confidence she does. If you know Christ as your Savior, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And in the next two verses, she gives the why. Verse 48, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. So why? Well, God took this girl who loved him and took her from being a nobody in the eyes of the world to being one of the most significant human beings that ever lived in the history of the human world. Billions of people today know and honor Mary, the mother of Jesus. Some go a little too far in that. But there's no end to the people who will speak of her and admire her and rejoice with her till the end of days. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. God has blessed Mary. He's done great things for her. She's thankful. Have you ever felt like that? Thankful? I hope so. What God offers us in Christ is nothing less wonderful than what she's experiencing. So watch now how Mary's words start to broaden out to the bigger picture. First she begins to focus on God's attributes and then she weaves in how God deals with all those whom he would call his people. Verse 49, she says, holy is his name. So first of all, she points to the holiness of God. His utter uniqueness, his utter difference from anything else that is, the uncreated one, his nature, which infinitely sets him apart from all other things. He's the creator, the owner, the possessor of everything. He's all powerful. He's all perfect. He's holy. How is it possible that such a being could involve himself with us? He does. You know, one of my favorite Bible verses in all the Bible is Isaiah chapter 57, uh, verse 15. I'm just going to read it for you real quick. God is speaking. It says, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God lives in a high and holy place, infinitely exalted, infinitely different from us in the vast expanse of the heavenly realms forever beyond our ability to even grasp and in the heart of people who are humble before him and lowly in his eyes, in their own eyes too. The proud will not know him, but the humble will. That's the Christian message. And that's the testimony of Mary. So back in Luke there, watch how this uh, theme develops. Verse 50, she says, And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He's not only holy, but merciful. And he extends that mercy down through the generations. Are you in need of mercy? Humble people know that they need God's mercy. And he's merciful to all, to all who fear him. God abounds in mercy. He's rich in mercy, as the New Testament says. Mary's song continues to give us a, a broad picture of the ways of God. She's moved from her circumstances to praise God for who he is and how he operates in the world. And then verse 51 brings us a, a point of contrast. In 49, she calls him the mighty one who has done great things for me. Verse 50, his mercy is upon all generations of those who fear him. And then the contrast in verse 51. 
Um, he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. So who does God scatter? The proud. So Mary knows her Bible. Time and time again, God overthrew those who were proud in their own hearts. There's a whole history of that. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Pharaoh and his chariots wiped out. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, acting like a cow. Eating grass and all that stuff. This grass is pretty good. Um, The corrupt kings of Israel, which God would just throw them down whenever he wanted to. Great empires he brought to their knees. Modern history is full of similar examples of great and proud and mighty men thrust down. Great men toppled, empires and nations overturned. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. God is in the business of turning things around or upside down, if you will. And of course, Mary's thinking of biblical history and her own circumstances. Rome was the world in Mary's day. I mean, Rome was the great empire and she's carrying in her womb the one who would ultimately undo everything that the Roman Empire was and stood for. But in her day, if you think power and wealth and invincibility, you think about that great city that was so far away in Italy from from where she lived, and its soldiers were all everywhere. They marched through her town all the time. You know, Nazareth was right on a major highway, and every time the Romans would march through um, that part of the world, they'd march right through her village, and, and she saw their armies. She knew what power was. Rome was the world, their art, their religion, their culture. um, They imported as spoils, but power was what they had on their own. And how is it that in Rome's decline, which meant centuries of endless internal conflict and barbarian invasions, and all through that time of Rome's long decline, there's only one institution that survived intact. It was the church. It was the church. The church had become so strong and so dominant that when Rome fell the church survived and that was God's plan the church described by Paul as not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble remember remember what else did Paul say God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. Remember that, 1 Corinthians? The rich and the powerful have a a temptation that's difficult to overcome. It's not unique to them, but they have it in abundance and that's self-sufficiency and pride. I don't need my Creator. I don't need the God of the universe. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need mercy. I'll make my own way. Mary rejoiced that God blessed the humble. Mary rejoiced that God would be attentive to her, a nobody, a nobody, to carry and nurture and raise her Savior, the only hope of her people. She knew God. She knew His holiness and His omnipotence and His mercy, not in the abstract, not just ideas about Him, but For her, she knew him as those things. That's the response of faith. Faith is not acknowledging just some sort of God out there, some sort of higher power out there, a God of our own imagination. That's what idolatry is. That is what modern idolatry is. 
Faith means embracing the God who's really there, who has revealed himself, the God who does things. And faith puts us in line with him and his plan and his will. And there's one more attribute of God Mary just really finds joy in, and that's the faithfulness of God. Why a Messiah at all, really? Why a Messiah? Why bother? Why not just take this corrupt world and crush it or burn it? I mean, if I was God, I'd get a really big match and just hold it under the earth and watch it go. I would, because if people treated me the way we treat him, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I wouldn't be merciful. But he is. Why not just crush it and start over? Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. God has made promises to Abraham, to his people, promises in words, promises written in a sacred text, and he won't break those promises. As much as we provoke him, he will act in human history for the redemption of the world and the blessing of his people Israel. It's going to happen. Promises of redemption, promises of cleansing, promises of forgiveness and restoration to a kingdom with a righteous king, a shepherd who would rule forever over the whole world. And so God's people, Israel, survived Babylon and so they survived Rome and so they survived the dispersion throughout the whole world and the pogroms and the persecution they met everywhere they went. And so they survived the Nazis and they will survive their current enemies As much as we hear in the news about people that hate them accumulating nuclear weapons and promising that they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth and that's going to all change and they should all move to Canada and all that kind of stuff, God's promise will be fulfilled and his protection will be there and his salvation will become real to them. And God's promise is why the church survives to carry the gospel to every nation and bear the light of the Messiah and his salvation through many, many dark centuries and many dark corners of the world and it's still going on wonderfully going on all over. And so the church survives. It survived Rome. It survived medievalism and religiosity and externalism and enlightenment atheism. And it survived communism. And the church will survive scientism. And it will survive all the other attempts to silence her and to put her down. The church survives because God is in control of history. And Mary knew that. God had promised and he would fulfill his promises. She knew he would. So she mentions Abraham because God told Abraham way, way, way back, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There was a messianic promise made to Abraham at the very beginning of her people. Many will be blessed, all the families of the earth, and Mary will be the source of that life who will bring the blessing of God to the whole world because God does not forget. God is holy. God is omnipotent. God is merciful. God is faithful. It's the same God you worship. The same God who called you to Christ. The same God who reached out to you in salvation, who made sure you heard the gospel and awakened your heart, opened your heart to receive it. Let me close with this scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Isn't that great? Can you rejoice at that? Does that humble you? Does that make you wonder? Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for the glory of the gospel. We thank you for Mary and her song and her faith and her confidence in you, her knowledge of you, her very profound and deep knowledge for a young woman of that time, Lord. We just thank you for that. We pray that we would have the same response that she had in our hearts, that our emotions would be not cold but warm with truth and very desirous of pleasing you, our Father. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.